It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly podcast. India continued their absurdly dominant recent record at home with a win over Australia at Nagpur. We'll talk about that. A historic day for the women's game, Owen Morgan's retirement, a bit on England, New Zealand and more. I'm Yazrana and with me today is Phil Walker, Ben Gardner and Joe Harmon. Joe, I thought the Nagpur test felt quite a lot like an English Ashes defeat in Australia. You had a calamitous first day, selections of it all over the place, a bit of hope in the middle and um, ultimately a drubbing. Um, do you think the pre-match pitch chat got to Australia a little bit? Not only uh, leaving out Travis Head, the number four ranked test batter in the world, but just their general approach across the three days in the end. That's an interesting take because um, Adam Collins, is, uh, who's our Aussie columnist, messaged me yesterday saying that that's exactly the take he's going to take do for his column. That this is very much, uh, yeah, England's ashes frazzled brains being replicated by Australia and India and it's it's happened before and yeah I, I absolutely think it all it all got on their heads I mean it's a bizarre selection I'd said beforehand I didn't think Travis Head we could expect him to kind of replicate the numbers he had in Australia but I didn't they wouldn't pick him that, that especially for for Hanscom who you know and Renshaw neither of which you would say are kind of solid picks you know fan of Hanscom are you Joe not really can't no. stand him no, I don't, I mean, as a bloke, I'm sure he's absolutely fine, but he's, 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 he's yet to impress me, Phil, say, and I'm sure that <laughs> gives him many sleepless nights. The Harmon jury is very much out. But I thought there's a quote I saw this morning from Andrew McDonald after the uh, after the defeat, which I thought by its very uh, confusedness summed up how it had all gone and said, I think the discussion point that we went through in the process will be different to the hindsight. And the hindsight is that those people that you will compare the competition for a place around didn't perform the way that we'd probably expected. Which I think is, a very, word salad right is a very long window saying we, we ballsed up, <laughs> yeah. basically, because, you know, they have. And I think now you, you bring, I, I don't know if they will bring Travis Head back in. I think Renshaw's struggling with a minor injury, obviously got a duck and two. I think Head has to come back in, but it's, it's not the way you want to play him. It's not, you've already shown that you don't have much faith in him in those conditions. 
Um, maybe he'll he'll come out and, and play a kind of fu innings and show that he should have been picked. But it it is a mess. It is a mess, and I think it's so hard to see them coming back from here. I, I didn't give them a whole lot of hope in the first place, but and even from that first session, I mean, losing a wicket in the second over, third over the worst possible start really but then they did manage to claw back claw their way back into it I thought Smith and Labuschagne looked quite comfortable there I think were they still only two down at lunch yeah lose yeah. one straight after lunch today that was a huge moment because they were 80 something for two and they played nicely um, and Labuschagne in particular played really well and on 49 and he played a very uncharacteristic shot tried to sort of go into out through extra cover and stumped by the the debutant keeper really good bit of work but the wheels just fell off thereafter, but they'd looked quite comfortable beforehand. And it's one of those weird moments, a hinge point in a game where you, obviously they're, they're not fancied, but if they had got somewhere to 150 for two or three, then they'd have put 300 on the board, you would have thought, mm. or even just 260 on the board. And then you are kind of in the game and then it may well have played out slightly differently. But, but that afternoon it was just a, a procession and Smith missed a straight one inexplicably missed a straight one and, and it, the, the middle all, order were exposed it all felt very familiar didn't it I mean you know one of the beauties of test cricket in general is that batting can look very comfortable and then suddenly very difficult and, and nowhere is that more emphasised than in India where it suddenly can look impossible having looked not not too challenging prior to that and then especially when Ashwin and Jadeja get their teeth into you they just don't let up I mean what what a partnership those two are um, I was just looking back at a thing that Crickviz did with us in 2020, which was the most valuable players in Test cricket over the course of the century, and Jadeja came out at number two. They're Murali number one, Jadeja number two, which I think caused a bit of surprise. And there was a lot of oh, you know, he only does it in home conditions. But actually, his numbers are even better now than they were then, particularly batting wise. He's taken his game up to another level. And the whole point about the way that Crickviz did those rankings is they're measuring match impact. So it's measuring how well a player performs above the average expectancy so it doesn't matter where you're playing it's how much better he's doing than everyone else in those in those conditions he's just an unbelievably good cricketer who just seems to be getting better I guess th this is the thing that like uh I think Australia were frazzled I mean you saw that with the Pat Cummins probably one of the worst spells ever bowled in test cricket that was bizarre uh, wasn't it yeah and, and it's because he was trying to go away from what works for him I think he's trying to go fuller and straighter attacking the stumps and Robert Sharma is just too good to was fall into that trap 13 runs off the first five balls yeah exactly 27 runs off the first three overs from Cummins and, and in, if India finished that day even like 40 for one run 77 for one we saw how fragile that India middle order still is you've got two debutants in the middle Kohli's not got runs recently Pajara's relatively short on runs recently so there was an opportunity for Australia there and it was actually that mini session there meant that they were so far behind India very very early on in the game yeah, so so they, they clearly were frazzled. And then he took Scott Boland out of the attack after one over with the new ball and then brought him back on quickly as well when Indian Hatch had quite a lot of success with their seamers with the new ball. So it was, it was clear that, that you know they, they were already chasing the game and they didn't really know how to do that. But equally, when the quality of India's spinners is, is Ashwin and Jajaj and you've got an, an all-round like Akshar Patel, who's you know, the least member of that trio, you can go in there with sort of like the best the best mindset and the best plans like in the game and you're still quite likely to get undone I think um so it's tricky because like, yeah Australia were undone and this tour could possibly unravel I mean there's already talks in the Australian media about David Warner's place in the side um you even wonder about Nathan Lyon with Todd Murphy having been so good and what, how that could play out over the rest of the series so that there is potential like you know consequences that could come from this but equally 
even if Australia were, you know, a completely Zen team and their their media was, you know, not not putting all these thoughts of an unplayable pitch into their heads and that sort of thing. I don't know how much different that would have made to the uh, to the result, I guess. And an uncapped spinner arriving in India who might end up playing the next test by the sounds of it as well. Matthew Kuhneman. He's, he's done okay in the Big Bash and I think he's done okay in the Sheffield Shield, but he's not played loads. Why has he been called um, up? Swepson's gone home for the birth right. of his child. I think he's Swepson's understudy in, in shield cricket. Yeah, left arm spinner, but they've obviously lost faith in Agar. Mm. Or seemingly, I say obviously. The, the talk is they've lost faith in Agar without him even having played a match out there. Uh, so yeah, this guy could be uh, straight into the side for the second test. But I guess the question is, because that's the other thing, is it's not clear exactly how they can rejig their 11. I think they would be tempted to get him in in some way, but you either have to leave out Todd Murphy, who bowled so brilliant on debut, or you leave out, you know, Nathan Lyon, your country's kind of greatest ever finger spinner, or you go with three spinners. Uh, and I don't know if they'd fancy doing any of those. But I think the thought was it, a lot of this was around if Cameron Green can't play. So then you have that a, five bowlers, basically. Five bowlers. Which yeah. is, again, that's also not when ideal. Not getting any think, runs yeah. is not, not ideal. Mm, just, just back on Jadeja, I know we mentioned Callis a little bit on last week's show. I almost feel like he's the Callis of this generation. Just the numbers he builds up are extraordinary. But also the way in which he's celebrated outside India isn't so much almost because of his style of cricket. So like you mentioned the ball to Smith, the ball in itself, you're like, he missed straight sure, one. But, but two or three had before, gone beforehand. Yeah. Which isn't quite as sexy as Ashwin with his three, four different variations. And, and that lower order as well with the bat can't discount that. Mm. You know, obviously they've got it done in this particular game. Um, but they, they just have rounded cricketers. Every, you know, a player that isn't really particularly close to the test side is Washington Sundar, who did really well when they went out to, to Australia. I mean, he could bat number three or or bowl 40 overs. And he's not even that close to the side. Aksar Patel made, what, 80-something, 80, 80 I think, in the end. Batted like a, like a proper middle-order player. Ashwin's made two, two test hundreds. Jadeja gets runs when he needs to regularly and infuriatingly for, for opposition sides. They are an extraordinary team in home conditions. Is it something like 45 wins in 52 games or 53 games? I think it is. Um, that is staggering, really. Another little note on, on Jadeja, which Crickvies picked out when they did this thing. And as I say, it was two years ago, so I'm not sure how much the data has shifted. But he, on average, has a bigger impact as a bowler in the first innings and the second innings, which for a spinner is you know exceptional. And he takes a higher percentage of top-order wickets. So when you've got a guy like that on your side, and he's averaging, what, 45 in Test cricket over the last few years, that's one hell of a player to have. Yeah, he, I mean, he's their third best batter, really, isn't he? After And with Pan out, he's their second best, you'd say, after after Rohit in terms of reliability. Um, and it was quite amusing that the talk of the selective watering and the pitch doctoring the lead up to the test that was supposed to make it absolutely impossible for all Australia's left-handers to bat against India's off-spinner. Uh, and then <laughs> India's two left-handers, one of whom is kind of a tail-ender, put on the, the biggest stand of the game against uh, an attack with two two quite good off-spinners, which uh, shows how much of this is, uh, is in the mind, I guess. The thing I find odd as well about Ashwin and Jadeja is that there's no real mythology around them as a partnership. Like when, you know, when you talk about Broad, Broad and Anderson have a name, they're Broaderson, you know, they're, they're, we're always seeing them sort of like colluding together and discussing plans and they'll talk about how much they influence each other and that sort of thing. You don't hear that really of Ashwin and Jadeja, they just do their work separately from either end. Uh, it's not, it's not also not a sense of competition either, they're just two like, uh, like great cricketers in the same team who do a similar thing. But the most you hear about them almost as a pair is when one is competing with the other for a spot on an overseas test rather than talking so much about how they complement each other uh, 
uh, on the field, I guess. That's true. As you know, well, they're one of the great test bowling partnerships, and, and they don't get talked about in those terms. I think perhaps they're they're both so individual, aren't they? Each of them are so you know, difference is also what makes them an interesting pair. But you know, it, it's hard to think of either of them in a pair because they kind of stand out for their own characteristics so much in itself. As for the the pitch chat, um, it's a dull one, isn't it? And pretty erroneous when you look at the scorecard and. While, while Nathan Lyons never really massively torn it up away from home in subcontinental conditions, 49 overs for, for one scalp speaks quite uh, articulately um, to, the, to the nonsense of the pitch debate. And also, to, to it does raise questions about where, it, I know it was mentioned earlier, but where he ends up in, in the course of this series. He's obviously been a sterling performer for them for many, many years, but... Todd Murphy emphatically outbowled him, and not just with the numbers. Um, Todd, Todd Murphy took seven for uh, from the similar, like, just got it up here. Two two overs fewer than, than Nathan Lyon, but uh, was far more attacking, far more threatening. Got a, got a lot more purchase, got a lot more overspin, and Lyon was the support act really. Uh, and I'm not saying that this is the end of Lyon's. You know, sensational career, really, four hundred plus wickets and all of that. Um, but when it comes, it comes quite, quite quickly. And they've been looking for a, for another bowler uh, to, to support Nathan Lyon. And now they've found one that, and he might be eclipsing him. And we'll know a lot more in the next two weeks. But it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be surprising to me if now he's turned the other side of thirty-five. Nathan Lyon, it might be, it might be time for him. But you just his home record is so good. It's almost like kind of two different bowlers. I mean, if you know if they're playing a Test match in in Australia, there is absolutely no doubt that he would play every single time. I think what will be, I think he can survive a bad series in India and it just be seen as something different, something like outside of that. I think coming over here and playing England will be fascinating because England will go after him, no doubt. We know they'll go after him, uh, and he doesn't always respond particularly well to that. He's he's not played a huge amount of uh, top level white ball cricket. That you know that could be a tour where he struggles to come out the other side from. There's, there's a really interesting piece on cricket. Or he could win it for Australia. I'm made to look very yeah. silly. <laughs> Admittedly, he's a very good bowler, but that I think that that battle will be one of the most fascinating things of the yeah. series this summer. Definitely, there's a really interesting piece on in cricket info about Lyon and basically making the argument that he is so much less effective on pitches that offer less bounce. So when he took eight for 50 on the first day of a test match in India six years ago, it was on an uncharacteristically bouncy pitch. There's quite a lot of moisture in it. Um, He's had so much success in Australia where the pitches are more bouncy. When he's gone to India on slower, lower pitches, you know, Ashwin was talking about deliberately pitching the ball up more to get the batters driving on, on a pitch that slow. Lyon has never really been able to adapt and have that success in Asia, and it's not as if you know Todd Murphy's on his first tour. If Todd Murphy didn't go that well, we'd be like, fair enough, he's never played a first-class game there. This is Lyon's third tour of India. He's played a lot of cricket there. Phil, we've not talked about Rohit Sharma yet. There was a piece of yours that was doing the rounds that you wrote yeah, in 2021. Resurrected yeah. from, from way back. But he, he was stunning. <laughs> yeah, there's no more economical batsman in the in the world or batter in the world across all the formats all the all the versions of the game and yet he's always there he's always in the perfect position and it's extraordinary that if you can that Gower quote from that thing that you mentioned that I wrote when he'd made the 83 at Lords in 2021 uh 
the Gower quote that I put in that article always comes back to me when I watch Rohit Sharma. If you can, if you can give the impression of simplicity while everybody acknowledges how hard it is, that's that's the that's the art of style. That's the the the, the secret of beauty, especially in sport. And I think Grant Gower said that's the greatest compliment. That's the greatest compliment you can give a player. Yeah. Uh, it was no, it was not a minefield for sure. But there were murmurs and rumours in the build-up to the game and then it started turning from day one and you can imagine a few reactionaries out there kicking off about it and then Sharma went out there just I tell you what it reminded me of it reminded me of Root at Trent Bridge in 2015 when Australia had got bowled out before lunch and everyone was saying this is unacceptable this is a green mamba of a pitch and Root went out there and just played it played beautifully and effortlessly and Sharma has has that that kind of understated majesty in everything that he does um I love the fact that he's not fat, but certainly not thin. I love the fact that he's he's conscious all the time of his own greatness and almost abashed by his greatness slightly. There's, there's a some some players, lots of players who are great, are demonstrably great and are demonstrating their greatness in everything that they do, um, in the way that they walk, in the way that they speak, the way that they sit, the way they eat a banana at the end of an over, whatever it might be, they are constantly saying, "Look at me! Look how great I am." Sharma's almost the opposite. He's almost slightly, slightly bashful in his own in his own genius, um, and he do he does things. That, you mentioned that opening salvo, and I watched all of that gripped, even middle the first ball of the between third and fourth slip but trying to leave it he still middled it uh and it was totally gripping but his body language was fascinating at the time because he there is something quite slightly embarrassed about him uh and he yeah the, the genius happens outside of the character almost you know and it's just a fascinating combination I just love to watch him play he's been Pound for pound, my favourite non-England player for a long, long time. It still remains baffling beyond words that he's played, what, 40 test matches? 40-something, I've got I've got him up here, let's have a, have a quick look. 40-something test matches in 10 years. And he was almost outside of test cricket. For He'd been pigeonholed and was probably accepting of it. I think it helps when you've got a few million in the bank and the adulation of Mumbai Indians and so on and so on. But test cricket needed him. A lot more than he needed needed Test cricket, as I wrote a couple of years ago, and he's now dedicated himself to it, uh, and is shaping the modern game as much as any player out there by doing it in, with this sort of timelessness, this old world beauty, this old world orthodoxy. The economy of movement is mad, and yet he's always, always in the right place, and, and he, this he slows it down. First Test match for a year. Almost bang on a year. Yeah, and they were saying, oh, well, you know, he's, he's, not, not, he's not in the best of form in white ball cricket. He just comes out there and just does that. It's just absolutely spectacular. It is funny, though, isn't it, how things have changed so much and that he was the white ball player who couldn't play test cricket. And now it looks a little bit like white ball cricket has slightly moved on from him. Not that he's still a phenomenal player, but there are better white ball players out there. And now test cricket looks absolutely made for him. Mm. I think. 46 games, sorry, yeah, 46 games um, across 10 years. I can't remember if we mentioned it on the show, but Ben and I had a conversation. I can't remember when it was. But we were talking about whether it would be possible uh, for Rohit to end his career with a higher test average than Kohli. Four years ago, Kohli averaged 54. Rohit averaged 38. It's now 48-47 in Kohli's favour. And given the current trajectories of both players, you wouldn't be surprised if Sharma's 
above Cody quite soon. Who would have imagined that four years ago? Yeah, well, because they promoted him to open for that South Africa series in 2018. And that felt, in a way, like a last sort of no. punt. And it felt like the last punt for, um, for, for Rohit as a test cricketer. I mean, he'd been drops at the end of the series in South Africa earlier that year. And actually, uh, Nasser Hussain had done some some tweets then saying like, if if you're telling me Rohit can't be a test player, you're wrong kind of thing, basically. Um, and this was, you know, when he was averaging below 40, all that. And then in a way, it's sort of like, how do they not try that soon? You know, you've got this all-time great opening the batting in, in white ball cricket. Why not see if he can do the same in test cricket? And then equally, you kind of felt that you had this white ball great. If there was going to be a, if, if there was somebody who wants to come in, you know, when the shine was off to take on the bowlers, it would be him. And yet he's somehow managed to create such, as Phil was saying, such technical perfection in terms of facing the new ball and yet doing it without having to change his natural style at all other players who have to you know cope with that you know unique challenge of facing the new ball in test cricket have had to come up with weird things to do to know when it's outside their eye line and they can leave or when to defend and how to play with soft hands that if they do get an edge it goes down and right doesn't doesn't really do any of that it's just plays exactly the same way all the time and yet now it works for some reason it's yeah I know I don't have any right to, but I feel kind of annoyed he didn't play more test cricket because yeah. you kind of know that at most we're only going to get another three, four years if we're, if we're lucky. We had a couple of questions in on, on this test match. Chris asked, I see Australian fans are grumbling that their team haven't given themselves enough time to prepare properly for the series in India. Is the biggest genius of Basball the fact that the England management have found a way to defy convention and make sure their players are ready to play test cricket despite what would appear to be an impossibly short time to prepare? I think it's a really interesting question. Um, I'm not, I don't think we should assume that England would go that much better against this India team in India. Um, but, but Joe, what do, you, what do you make of that? Well, also, yeah, England have got a tough series in New Zealand that could make this feel de- very dated very quickly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I think it's a really interesting question and not one I'd kind of thought about, but, you know, that the basball philosophy does to an extent take preparation out of the equation. There are there's caveats to that in that um, the form that we saw from Harry Brook and Ben Duckett in Pakistan wasn't through red ball preparation, but it was very much through white ball preparation in the case of Brook playing franchise cricket as well. But obviously having a run in those T20s beforehand, they both said how much that, that helped them. So I think just the nature of preparation is is changing. It's not just about playing a, a Red Bull three-day game and therefore you get a nick. I think it's acclimatising to the conditions, whatever format of the game you're playing. Um, I don't know if Australia could have... you know, They would have definitely been in a better position to counter what was thrown at them in the last test match if they'd have had some proper preparation. But... The gap is still so big, I'm not sure it would have made a huge amount of difference. And also, you know, we can discuss it, but there's not the gaps in the schedule just don't exist. So it's kind of a, a it's a non-argument, really. Uh, I feel you're right in that in the context of the, the pitches as well, that just for the magazine that, you know, you can argue about all you like, but this, this isn't going to change. You're not going to suddenly get your, your three Red Bull warm-up games in the lead-up to a test series. It's just literally not time in the calendar. No, uh obviously true obviously that's the that's, that's the real reality of it um i would humbly suggest that well firstly australia have been in in india for over two weeks and they haven't played a game uh usman kamaja has never played a test match in in india um and 12 days before the first test match he was getting on a plane the day after he'd he'd made 50 odd for brisbane in the t- in the T20 stuff, there's no there's nothing 
it, between that and that, in the best part of two weeks before you're, ne- you're then facing up against those those players. Now, you are out there for two weeks, and I know that the nature of training has changed and preparation has changed, but no one can convince me that two, three-day games squeezed into that week and a half where you are preparing, where you have three or four knocks, and that the host nation, whether it be India or England or whoever, any of the big ones, and you have to have a proper run-up to a big series because you have to respect the bigness of the series. The host nation then says, okay, we're going to find a good 11 for you to play because we recognise that overall the product needs it. It needs you to be in slightly better nick than coming off a plane, hitting, having a few nets and then getting out there. In, in the middle practice against two good spinners, two good young Indian spinners, a Washington, a Washington Sundar and an AN other, it will obviously... If we're talking about tiny little incremental benefits, then obviously it would benefit Kawaja, just to use him as an example, to go out there and have three or four knocks against some good quality spinners. You're there for the best part of two weeks. So there needs to be, a, I think, a recognition that for certain series, obviously the majority, the world's moved on and we just accept it, but for certain series, I think there has to be a recognition that if you want to actually compete and if you want to justify the magnitude of that series and the scale of that series. You can't call something a showdown and a landmark series and a marquee this, that and the other and all these big terms and not even have a hit and just accept that that's the way of the world when you're there for two weeks anyway. There should have been an effort, I think, from both sides. When England went to Australia 12 years ago, they played an Australia A side and they played a good stateside it got them in nick it helped them win the series and i think australia vowed to never let that and they, happen they vowed, again <laughs> they vowed to never let, let it happen again and since then england haven't won a test match out there um that's problematic it's problematic for the overall game it's problematic for the the sanctity of these games when india come over over to england next i want to see them play against the england lions and if and if that means that they are in better nick for that first test match in Edgbaston and then the swinging ball or whatever is slightly less of a threat to them, same with Australia this summer, then I want to see that. I absolutely want to see that. And it should that should be a surmountable problem, right? And that there's give and take. It's in your interest. It's quite short term thinking to to say, well, well, we're not going to let the tourists do that because we don't want them to be in good nick. When actually the flip side is, well, when you go over to their country, so there, there can be there can be a bit of kind of. You know, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine tonight. For sure, here. for sure. Um, but we seem to have kind of fallen away from that. But because there is that level of distrust that teams don't even want to play touring sides because they think they'll just end up with a Mickey Mouse game that's not worth it. I feel like there's a there's a different point though in terms of what McCullum and Stokes have done. Because sure, okay, sorry, so, we moved on from that. There's a purity, I guess, to what they're doing that is probably more transparent. They just want to play golf. Basically. Well, when but, I spoke to Ollie Pope, he was like, "Yeah, I've had three days of golf." But I think I think that is prob- maybe quite a valuable part of it. And from looking, admittedly, from looking from the outside, but it seems like Australia's training and practice in the series has been there's going to be something quite suffocating about a very intense training session. You know, you've got all these sort of net bowlers milling around if you are struggling you're getting sort of getting out again and again and again on wickets that they've made to be as hard as possible because you know you're, you're training hard so you can fight easy um and and if you don't get the balance right between keeping players sort of like spirits up enjoying the good aspects of touring as well as you know working hard to make sure you're in the best possible condition then you can kind of come into a series and you're, you're just not in the right frame of mind i mean we've seen when so england played that warm-up game against england Lions in the UAE ahead of that Pakistan series and they, they you know it was hard fought cricket there were some some good batters in there with Archer against Crawley and that sort of thing but they also had some fun and they made sure to have some time off as well 
outside of it. And I'm, I almost think that's there's like a real clarity of thought with what McCullum and Stokes are doing outside of games as well as inside. Like I think there was talk of uh, for this New Zealand series, there was a, a, a mini camp that the the people who were there said was some of the hardest training they've ever seen. But that was it, and then it was done. And then you're making sure you have the time to switch off as well. And I actually think it's almost warm-up games can be great and that sort of thing but it's making sure that you're not just training by just facing loads and loads of, of offspin basically and it and, and making sure you get the balance right between yeah all the uh, yeah. of life I, I see that also just if, if you are accepting that test cricket will become more contracted rather than more expansive and that the big three will be playing each other more and more and the schedule is actually confirming that for the next few years if that's the way that it's going to be then give a bit more respect a bit more credence to these 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 series recognize that this the calendar has shifted and priorities have shifted and player power is such as it is all of that fine the horse has bolted long ago but for certain real big ones get there two weeks early to get there three weeks early and ensure that the boards the big three boards are talking to one to one another just to try and level the imbalance just to a small degree um, because there is a bit of an issue that England, Australia, the big one, England don't stand a chance out there. And I'm not saying you look, you could play the whole Sheffield Shield season and they'd probably still lose. I'm not saying that this overturns the way that things are, but it can help alleviate the imbalance a small degree. And obviously the same thing applies when you're on turners. Ben Sam asks, not quite such a big deal after Todd Murphy bowled so well, but why is Zampa never in the picture for the Australian test side? One of the best white ball spinners doing it and would have thought that he'd cross over well. If he was English, you'd say he'd have at least played some tests. It's quite interesting, especially with the news that uh, Kuhneman's in the squad. Kuhneman's only played 13 first-class games. And you've got Adam Zampa, who had an interview with Adya Sharma from Wizard India, uh, last week where he, he was clearly very disappointed that he didn't make the test squad for India. Yeah, well, that's the thing is, is he, he's, he's raring to play if he gets a go and he knows that he's only really going to play on this type of tour when they need a second or a, or a third spinner. And he's, you know, he's not played a huge amount of first-class cricket recently. If you look at just his first-class record, it's it's modest. But... Averaging almost 50, isn't he? Yeah. I think he's had two Red Bull games in four years but what, one of so them was this that's pretty compelling reasons for why he's not playing yeah but it's, I think he was he was close to selection he, for he obviously tour, thought that he had well there's a sense in the quotes that he thinks that he was sort of half told that he would be going that was the level of disappointment suggested that but you know they've got Swepson is an up and coming leg spinner who plays a lot of shield cricket you're probably not going to take two leggies to India I think it's fair enough really Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify.
England New Zealand is supposed to start this week, but Cyclone Gabrielle is derailing much of the pre-series build-up. A few of the New Zealand team have been unable to actually reach uh, the rest of the squad at Mount Monganui, where the first test is set to be played because of the weather. For various reasons, Tom Blundell, Henry Nichols, Matt Henry, Will Young and Blair Tickner are not there yet. Blundell and Henry are both on paternity leave. Joe, it feels quite like a COVID tour almost. Short, a bit random and you're not sure it's going to go ahead. (laughs) It's feeling like it's shaping up for a, a damp squid, as Alistair Cook once famously <laughs> said. Classic. Um, yeah. What squids aren't? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's probably what he was thinking. What? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we, yeah, we, we can kind of preview the test, but it looks like there might not be a huge amount of cricket the way things are going. I think the weather's slightly better in Mount Monganui than it is elsewhere, but, 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 still, not but still not great. And there's more poor weather expected to come. Um, oh, so yeah, and then you, then it's a one test series potentially when two wasn't enough in the first place. Yeah, I'm on I'm on the night shift for that for the first test, <laughs> and I'm I'm not looking forward. Don't you to do it. the rotor, or is that Ben stitched no, you up? I, I volunteered to do it because I like watching cricket. And also, but, you've been off for a week. You're knackered. I can hear it in your voice, mate. Um, you need a. I've not been off for a week. I was off for. A I'm weekend. not sure doing night shifts is the way to perk himself well, back no, up. There. No, I feel for you. Um, <laughs> I guess there's one main selection question for England is which seam bowlers do they go with? Doesn't matter. Um, it, 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 it doesn't matter if it rains all the time, but Ben, if it, if it does happen, who do you like to see? <laughs> uh, I'll keep it short. I would like to see uh, Anderson, Stone and Robinson. And I think they will likely go with Anderson, Broad and Robinson. Hmm. Um, Phil, what do you think? Uh, I agree with every single word he's just said. Me, Joe, me I was too. listening. <laughs> me, I was listening. No, me too, disappointingly. Not great podcast chat, is it? <laughs> Joe, you mentioned that uh, Stuart Balls did an interview with The Telegraph. Um, uh, Ali Martin, the Guardian, oh, sorry, I think. that was it, yeah. yeah. Ali's piece suggested that Broad was, was in front of Potts and Stone for mm. the third Seamus slot. Although I don't know how much Broad may have suggested that was the case himself. You're <laughs> never quite sure. <laughs> how uh, dare you suggest such a thing? He did say something that Butch said at the time that as, as upset as he was about not going to the Caribbean for the, for the tour last year, that if he had and had had to bowl on those pitches, then he might well not be playing test cricket as things stand, uh, which I think is, you know, probably probably true, mm. really. Yeah, that probably would have been the end of him. And, and look, I mean, he averaged, what, was it 25, I think, with the ball in 2022, having come back after that West Indies tour? And he was, would have been, if he'd gone to... If he was gone to Pakistan, which he might not have done even if he, even if he wasn't staying at home for the birth of his kids, uh, but... He, would, he was very close to being his leading wicket-taker mm. last year. Yeah. I, I was actually surprised. You know, I just misremembered. That I, he was I, up there. Yeah. I was really surprised as well. Yeah, Because well, he didn't have any... He didn't have a big haul, did he? He was just taking yeah. threes and fours, I think. At, at, yeah, I, I don't know if he it. took a five. I can't remember and, a five. And though. also, at the start of the summer, he wasn't actually bowling that well. In the New Zealand series, Potts probably played better than Broad did. And it was kind of like he slowly got better as the summer progressed. I just looked up the weather forecast, by the way. It is dreadful. Right, there um, you go then. Th- th- Thursday... The first two days, the forecast is so bad. And then Saturday, still pretty bad. And then Sunday, still pretty bad. But we might get some cricket on day five. And are you, um, you going to be up throughout um, filling in Wisdom's digital following on what the weather is like in Mount yeah, Mongolia? I think I might be um, a, a, a British foremost expert on the, the, the weather in New Zealand. You're quite, week. quite a fan of unusual weather, Yaz. So in some ways, this is a... Am I? Yeah, you're often <laughs> tweeting about when there's, you know, a, a difference between it's raining one day and sunny the next. There's a difference, though, isn't there, to getting up at, That's true, to, what, to, to at one in the morning to watch out, it. Yeah. And also, the... arguably, this isn't interesting weather, it's just raining the entire <laughs> time. 
Um, he has got the arse ache today. This is great <laughs> stuff. You should be. You should go off on heavy weekends and have a podcast on a Monday morning more often. I'm enjoying this. Earlier this morning, Owen Morgan announced his retirement from the professional game. I'm sure we had a conversation on his legacy when he announced his England retirement last year, but I don't mind having another conversation about that. Um, Phil, in, in many ways, uh, he's one of the most significant figures in English cricket history. I don't think that's too far. We talked a lot about Strauss last week, but Morgan's um, got a comparable legacy. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a cliche now, of course. Um, he's one of the immortals of English cricket. Um, when I heard the news, I, I went back to find some old stuff, that old interviews that I'd done and write-ups and magazines that I was involved with that other people have done and so on. And, and I wanted to talk actually about those early years with him as a player because we know about him as a captain but the signs were there in the stuff that he did with England in the early years uh, and there was that hundred that he made his first hundred for England uh, at Southampton Australia in 2010 and I brought that scorecard up this morning and they won that game with four overs to spare chasing and they were six down they were five down until the last and then they were six down Yardy was not out one at the end but Morgan just kept going. The point is, he kept going. And they'd done it in 46 overs, chasing 270. So back then, 12 years ago, you know, it's a reasonably tricky chase. Back then it was, anyway. And he just kept going. And it was 88 balls for 100 and something not out. Uh, and he was already, in his way, signposting what was to come, I think. And then it got me to thinking, the first ever memory that I have of the bloke... In fact, there's two. The first one was that he couldn't buy a run in the 2007 World Cup when he was a kid for Ireland. But I remember them talking about him in interested tones. And then, he, and then I don't know if you, you, you've ever seen this, but there was a, a, a clip. You'll remember this, Joe, that went viral, as they say, on the socials with him playing a, a reverse... Almost pre-socials. Almost <laughs> pre-socials, yeah. But he, he played a, a kind of almost a triple reverse sweep for Middlesex. Do you remember this? Yeah, it was, I think it was, it was the reverse, the re- reverse. The reverse, basically. reverse. It's yeah. really hard to explain. Just, it'll be out there somewhere. In fact, find a link, stick it on the, the end of your podcast. And anyway, he goes to play reverse sweep, left-hander, goes to play reverse sweep against a conventional off-break and he gets there and halfway through the shot, he realises that the ball is down his leg side. So then he reverses his reverse and then comes back on himself and then paddles it behind him uh, in the, in, to make a, basically a conventional sweep shot. But he doesn't do it with a conventional bat face. He does it by kind of flipping down on himself as if he's sort of patting, patting a dog with his hand, you know. Ridiculous shot. And he changed it halfway through. And this was 2009 or so. You just didn't see that sort of stuff back then. It just didn't happen. And I think he made 160 that day for Middlesex. And that clip did the rounds. And England got interested in him. Uh, he was already doing strange things then. Um, and it stemmed from fearlessness. And that fearlessness, as he's acknowledged himself, that in itself stemmed from his background. He did a brilliant thing where he went back to Dublin last summer and that very good documentary that's on Sky about England's 2019 World Cup win and they went back to Bradford with Adil Rashid and so on. Anyway, they, they went back to Morgan, Morgan's home in Dublin and Morgan said this place gave me an edge really interesting term he knew that he was different and he embraced and he 
sharpened that difference at every single opportunity. And whereas English cricket back then was sort of kind of hamstrung by its own homogeny, everybody had to sort of be look the same and speak the same and act the same. Uh, and personalities and outliers were sort of broadly distrusted. And Peterson was going through his latest psychodrama with England because they never really knew what to make of him. And then there was Morgan, who was quite upfront about this. This article from this magazine was 20, 2010, November 2010, just after he'd made his 100. So two or three months after he made his first test 100. And he says, he said to me, I play differently to everybody else. There's something in my game that's different to everybody else. And to say that, Quite a revolutionary thing to say, really, at that time. It was quite revolutionary because you, Peterson was the first one who played it, played white ball cricket in particular differently for England. Everyone remembers Butler because of how great he'd gone to become. But there was a period where Morgan was just so different right. to how England players played. Yeah, but you would think if you come from from an unusual background, and you would think that you would need, you would instinctively want to try and trammel yourself to fit into the the mold but he he went the other way and English cricket wasn't sure if it was ready for him until they saw him play and that hundred at Southampton that blew everything out the water and then for two or three years he was just a white ball genius with the bat uh, and there were indications in how he went about it what Strauss eventually saw in him and then they gave him the captaincy um, but he was he was doing it he was pushing the line and he was daring English cricket to think outside of itself, even when he was a kid. Uh, the rest, as we know, is history. Am I making this up? There's a really cool story about his first Test hundred. Right. I wondered if you, were, if if I should mention it because I probably mentioned it half a dozen times, and Joe I, has already fallen asleep because I, he knows I, I what's coming. I, I think if you have mentioned it in the show, you maximum mentioned it once. All right, I'm, I'm going to read it out. It sounds like we've set this up, but we haven't. But anyway, here it goes. Um, right, a few. In his third test innings, Morgan takes guard in dank conditions at Trent Bridge, England four down for not many. He makes 100. On 96, Pakistan's off-spinner encourages the big shot by tossing one up. Morgan encourages it over the sight screen. He finishes the first day 125 not out. Okay? That night, he goes out with his girlfriend in Nottingham. Quote, he says, And we were just chatting about this and that because she knows nothing about cricket. And she said, Oh, how, how did you go today? Oh, how was today? And I said, Yeah, I had a good day. And she said, Oh, brilliant. Full stop. End of paragraph. There's more. He says, yeah, so the next morning, she, his girlfriend, she goes to work. She walks past one of the guy's offices and there it is, this big picture of, of me on the front page of the Times. <laughs> and, I, and I say to him, so let me get this straight. You're out with your, your, your girlfriend. You've just made your first Test 100 and you don't even mention it. <laughs> I say, if I get 50 on a, on a Saturday, I mean, I'm on the phone to my, to my <laughs> missus straight away. You'll never guess what happened to me today. Morgan puts his feet up and leans back on his chair. Yeah, it's probably better that she's not involved. It's cricket and she's not too keen. <laughs> that, that is a glimpse into the man's mind, really, mm. I think. And, and it's he, always stayed with me because it, it is off the charts, isn't it? And he was young then as well. He was like a kid? That, yeah. I mean, that's a potentially life-changing moment. You made your first Test 100. Didn't even mm. mention it. Amazing geezer. I wonder if he told her about his first White Ball 100. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, anyway, today is a historic day for the women's game as the women's IPL auction has been taking place. There is significant money being spent. So the so RCB spent about £750,000 on just three players, Smriti Mandana, Elise Perry and Sophie Devine. Nat Siverbrunt has earned a £300,000 contract with Mumbai Indians. 
Um, as we talked about before, this is totally game changing for the women's game. It's also a very short tournament. It's not quite... Um, 21 days. Yeah, so it's not quite the level that the top, top men's players get paid. But Siva Brunt is on a lot more money than a lot of England men's players will be on in the IPL. Um, it's already the second largest uh, women's sports tournament. In terms of media rights, media rights value, it's already, already the second largest female sports tournament in the world after the women's NBA. That's the scale of the thing. And after the men's IPL, it's the second largest, again, in terms of media rights, value. It's the second largest cricket tournament after the men's IPL across the genders. That's how big it is already. I was thinking about this the other day because we've given BCCI quite a lot of stick over the years for not having brought in a women's IPL or, you know, what the, uh, sooner. But now it's happened and you see the sums on the table and you see the media rights involved. Maybe in the in hindsight, it will be to its benefit that it did take a bit of a while to come through. Not for the players who've missed out on contracts over the last few years, but for its long-term success, I wonder if actually it has arrived at the right time. It's a very good point. I, I spoke to Isha Gua about this on Friday morning and she said, I, I said, can we expect the, you know, the product, the quality, the spectacle to be, uh, to, to do justice to the numbers? And she said, the BCCI would not be putting this on unless they can guarantee that it will, it will bring it home for them. Because they know, they know business. That's and, it. you know, if it begins limply, that's doing no one any favours. Um, so, you know, may, maybe it wasn't such a bad call after all. And in terms of the, the auction dynamics, uh, you can see there's, there's lots of thinking that's gone into this. And it's been interesting following the type of players that are getting big deals as well. And, you know, seeing all of the furrowed brows and stuff, picking over it in the whichever hotel they're in. So I think it's, it's interesting how it seems like, I think IPL or... WPL team owners think that there's a like, sort of an elite group of batters and these are the most valuable players. These are the ones that really make the difference. And actually, those ones that have gone for like it, that. So that Mandana bid, she went for over a quarter of RCB's total budget for the whole competition. And the same actually with, with Siver and Siver Brunt and Ash Gardner both went for over a quarter of their team's budget. Sorry, what was it? What was the final figure? It was three for, for Siva Brunt? It's just over three hundred grand. Three, yeah, three twenty. Yeah. BBC reporting. Yeah, yeah. Um, so <laughs> that's marketability, right? Mandana is is the star of Indian cricket, and so there's an element of that at play as well, perhaps. I guess possibly, yeah. But there have also been big marketable names who haven't gone for for that money. You know, like Heather Knight is, you know, the England captain. She's gone unsold so far. Same with Sunil Lewis, the African captain. Jamariah Patu is it, normally you'd see a player who wins a, a a World Cup game against one of the favourites. They'd be you know bang on for a big big IPL deal if it was a uh, round the corner of that. And that but but, but it's, it's also we it's it's year dot for this thing as well. And if you can get some sort of brand loyalty with a player like Mandana, who's mm-hmm. obviously still a young player but an icon player, then then the, you know the money takes care of itself. No, sure, yeah, but I and I think it's yeah, there's, you can build a franchise around her for sure. But I also think that. In just from a cricket point of view, they think that the that the best batters are the ones who are the most valuable. And actually, the bowlers, I think there's almost like a much for muchness there. So you can you can afford to get the tenth best bowler, but if you're getting the tenth best batter, you're missing out on loads, kind of thing. And you can fill in the gaps later on. It's quite interesting to see that play out this morning. I guess is there a second round? Yeah, I think I think players can come back up uh, later on. It's still yeah, we should say it's still ongoing as we're as we're talking. The the World Cup started on Friday. Um, with the with a great first game, Sri Lanka beat the hosts South Africa. Um, Jamari Atapata, who, who Ben mentioned, scored sixty-eight or fifty in a three-run win against the South Africa side, who, as we mentioned last week, were were in decent form coming into the tournament. 
England are currently playing their second game. They're playing Ireland at the moment. England got off to a, a winning start, beating West Indies, chasing down 136 in 14 and a half overs. Um, Australia destroyed New Zealand, which might be significant for New Zealand's hopes if net run rate comes into it, because um, that's taken an early hammering. Ash Gardner took five for 12 from just three overs for the Aussies. And then there was a brilliant game between India and Pakistan. Pakistan pushed India uh, very close India chased down 150 with an over to spare. Uh, Pakistan youngster Aisha Naseem um, seems to be quite a special talent. So she hit 43 off 25 at the death. She's only 18. Um, and there's a couple of Indian youngsters that helped them get over the line with uh, Jemima Rodriguez and Risha Ghosh doing well for them. Um, India benefited from a seven ball over um, at one point in the game. Um, not the kind of thing you want in a World Cup, but it does it does just happen every now and again. I think there was an instance of a five ball over in the recent men's T20 World Cup. Yeah, um, there was. I think if, if Pakistan are looking back on that game, there's actually a different moment they'll look back on as, as turning it. So I think it was the last ball of the of the 16th over, I think. Um, and at that point, India need more than 10s. Um, and Risha Ghosh, who ends up back into victory, is given out LBW, reviews it at first it seems like it's kind of more in hope than expectation yeah but it's just taken a tiny flick off the glove Mm. and then she goes in a spree thereafter and it felt a bit as well like Pakistan almost felt like that was their their chance gone in a way that that was when the the loose ball started coming and the misfield started happening and and it actually all ended quite quickly after that from a position where you'd have put Pakistan as favourites but yeah a brilliant game and I think you're also seeing the benefits of the the under-19 World Cup as well and that Sri Lanka win obviously Chamara Tapasu who you know is brilliant she's the only player to hit ODI and T20 centuries against Australia, which I think is a good stat. Um, but v- Vishmi Gunaratne uh, made uh, made 35 and hit Shabnam Ismail, who's what one of the fast bowlers ever been for three fours in a row, and she's 17 years old. And uh, for Aspasius to have another player alongside her is is huge for Sri Lanka, who have I think the early part half of last decade had a bit of reputation as giant killers, a team that you wouldn't want to face, and then actually became a side that weren't really competing uh, at these tournaments and now they have a, a real shot at, at a semi-final if, if they beat New Zealand they're basically there even if they don't and lose New Zealand and Australia they still have an outside chance so yeah just, just on the Pakistan game Pakistan India game I, I watched the vast majority of it it was a really good game of cricket and you're really roused to see Pakistan's women's side competing with one of the big ones um, it's frustrating though because their fielding was left a lot to be desired right and if they just sharpened up they'd have won that game and the, the bit of luck that Ben mentions this little kind of feather on the glove to to, to save Gosh at the end uh, they were really close to winning that game that would have been a huge moment I think for the women's game full stop but I've noticed the fielding with a couple of other sides as well Sri Lanka's fielding was a little bit little bit iffy as well and, and I find that quite surprising that while there are going to be limitations with with the bat with emerging teams because you're looking at smallish catchment areas and you're, obviously it's expanding. Your playing pool is expanding all the time, but still there are there are issues around the quali- the depth of quality with certain certain nations. But you would think that the fielding side of things would be a bit sharper, and perhaps it's big tournament nerves. I don't know what it is, but there were a lot of mistakes from Pakistan's outfielders. And I saw the same in the, the, the South Africa-Sri Lanka game as well. Um, I don't know if that's a pattern or if it's, if it's the nature yeah. of the tournament being such a big deal. I don't know. But you would think that that would be the area where standards would be up here. Um, I remember Atherton saying about Zimbabwe, when the, the men's side when they were coming through, that 
you can always work on your fielding. You can always ensure that your fielding is top class. Uh, that's the great equaliser across teams that don't have the same resources as others. Um, but as I say, Pakistan will be really, really kicking themselves at Equal, they on, let it go. On, on the resource question in terms of fielding, it's about being drilled. It's about having properly top-level coaches, right? Like Because it's a thing you can improve by being really coached. From the one hand, you can say all teams should be able to do it. On the other hand, you can say actually the teams with the best resources are going to be the best fielding sides because they'll have that much more time to, to put into it. Does that make sense? Like if you can hit a ball, you can hit a ball. Yeah, possibly. But, if you can, uh, but you need How to much time they're spending fielding. together would be, would be an interesting question to know the answer to because, mm. you know, that, that is so much, as you say, it's just drilling. It's just practice. Like, it is just practice. Yeah. Perhaps it, perhaps it is, a, is a time issue as much as anything else. And, and Thailand, who are an emerging team but who pride themselves on their fielding and are brilliant at it, do spend absolutely loads of time together and train in an interesting way with their fielding as well where it's a lot of sort of match situation stuff. Yeah. Um, which enables them to sort of be making the right decisions in terms of where to throw, knowing, you know, when there's weird bobbles and that sort of thing, not just like, you know, going through the same thing over and over again, which is getting you good at one thing, but not getting you good at knowing how to field in a game, which can uh, be a different skill, I guess. Um, Joe asks, is James Vince the best white ball captain in the world? So Certainly the J- busiest. J- James Vince's golf giant side become the first became the first ever winners of the ILT20 this weekend, um, Ben, I was trying to work out how, how many tournaments Vince has won recently. So he's won at least two BBLs, uh, a Blast, the 100 and the ILT20 in a very short space of time. And, and in the summer, we we're talking about the possibility of Vince leading his side to, to everything last year. Yeah, and I guess... Didn't quite happen. And Joe, you've, you've done an interview with Vince Vore, he talks about this a bit, and or you talk about it as well, where uh, because, you know, he's almost got that... that Robert Sharma problem but to a lesser degree of, of making it look easy when it looks easy uh, so you can think he doesn't sort of like have that sort of emotional attachment and that kind of that passion and that drive when he, he definitely does and and he is a brilliant captain somebody who thinks about his leadership a lot as well and how to get the most out of players how to create good environments I guess the, the one thing I'm always slightly skeptical of is because as Phil says he's always captaining somewhere if you can uh, if you can turn on the TV at any point James Vince will be captaining in a T20 tournament uh how many are there that he's that he's not winning that we forget and we just remember the ones that he's won? I don't know. I but reckon he genuinely wouldn't know how many titles he's won if you asked him. Uh, the SA20 finished uh, over the weekend. Sunrisers Eastern Cape beat Pretoria Capitals in the final. Adam Rossington hit 57 off 30 at the top. Uh, Rudolf van der Merwe continued his incredible tournament. He's 38 years old. He took a fourth in the final and I think he finished with an average of less than 10 with the ball and an economy of less than six across the tournament. Um Aidan Markham won the player of the tournament award. Uh, he, he was brilliant in the semi-final. Um, he was very good in the tournament with the ball as well, which is clearly getting quite a lot um, better at. Phil, a success, the tournament? Definitely. Uh, well attended. I thought they got the balance right between serious cricket and spectacle. The punters were clearly loving it. Uh, there were some marvellous crowd scenes. Obviously, you're, you're winning a significant amount of money if you catch one one-handed but there was one moment when a bloke dived into the swimming pool that was or the paddling pool that was there installed at deep square leg and he dived in to try and catch it one-handed at one moment there was a real genuine party feel around it and I don't think it was contrived uh that wasn't the impression that I got watching on the telly which in in the end is what I'm the I'm their audience right all these things are tv audience driven and if the punters in the ground can help you along the way then all the better 
but what you really did see is the depth of quality as ever in South African cricket, right? You see a number of 21-year-olds coming through whose names I'd never heard of, who invariably or on their moments lit the thing up. Um, Markram was probably the standout player. His 100 in the semi-final was absolutely brilliant because it was on a on a lively one and they were 10 for two and Bavuma had got an absolute snorter for a first ball, had gloved it to, to looped it to, to first slip. Markham came in 10 for two, had to win the game and he made a 50-something ball 100. Absolutely brilliant innings. He was probably the player of the tournament, I would think. But uh, but the final was, was a good one and my boy Adam Rossington, um, who... I want to know how you come to deciding who your boys are. Be, okay, it's a great question. I, 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 great, great question. I think that's the it's first time you right. said... I've got two answers for you. One... <laughs> he plays for Essex. Well, one... And I you put I running him to I score runs him, at some point? I interviewed him the day after he signed for Essex when it all ended under a cloud with North Ants and he suddenly... And so then his agent puts the call out and Essex shouted the loudest and wanted him the most, so he ends up at Essex. Uh, and I interviewed him that morning... And he literally pulled into Essex about half an hour before that. He'd not met anybody and he was stuck into being interviewed by me. Uh, I liked his style then. I liked his accent. I liked the way he carried himself. I liked the way he plays his cricket. And the fact now that he plays at the club that, I'm, that I like um, certainly elevates his my boy status for me. The other thing is I put money on him at 66 to 1 to be the top run scorer in the 100 last, last year. And although he didn't get anywhere near it, he, he did get a few. He did get a few. And so it's like those, those like with all, with all sports, you have your certain favourites, right, that no one ever really pays any attention to. And when they have a day out, then you, you claim them as if you already knew, as if you, you're direct line to the, the universal truths. And he, he's, he's always been one of mine. So I was delighted to see that, that he did well. And he's one of the stars of the tournament as well. And the, the Markram thing with the ball, just it, that is actually potentially quite significant for South Africa at this World Cup. I mean, Shamsi is not quite the force in ODI cricket as he is in T20 cricket. And if they can have a top order option who is turning the ball that way when they've got Maharaj turning the other way, um, and also Maharaj a really good batsman, and you can just see how, like, obviously having all-rounders is, is valuable. But at this World Cup, if it means India can play all their amazing quicks and have actually a pretty useful bowling option in Markram. Sorry, yeah, if South Africa can play all their amazing quicks and have a, uh, a, a useful bowling option in Markram, then that could be quite important. Um, just because I didn't actually give you any names. Uh, obviously, Stubbs, they talk about. Brevis, they talk about a lot. There's another one, Jordan Herman, 21 years, uh, lefty, got, got time, got class, averages 75 in first-class cricket with a couple of hundreds already. Only from a few games, but he's just getting going and... Made runs in white ball cricket as well. He looked absolutely class. Uh, they will always keep producing, and so while it feels like a, a big moment and a potentially crisis point for South African cricket, superficially, I think they'll be fine. I really do. Over the next few years, I think it'll be absolutely fine. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. 
When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Before we end today's show, we're joined by Mark from Opening Up Cricket, an organisation that promotes positive mental health in our game. Um, great to have you on, Mark. I think a lot of people have heard of Opening Up Cricket and knows a bit about the organisation, but can you first explain exactly what the organisation does? Yeah, we exist really to promote mental well-being and suicide prevention through cricket. And that's principally done by going out and seeing clubs, but really grabbing any opportunity we have to use our brilliant sport to try and introduce conversations about the thing, a thing which affects absolutely everyone, that being our health and and how we can hopefully use cricket to enjoy our lives that bit more. If someone who's involved with the cricket club is... Here's, here's what you're saying now and, and wants to, to get involved. What's the best way for them to do that? Well, contact us via social media and all the platforms or drop me a line directly, mark at openingupcricket.com and we can have a chat about whatever might work for their particular setting. And you're now launching a new campaign called Second Spells. Do you want to talk us through that? Yeah, really, at this stage of the year, the thing which comes to mind once perhaps people's winter nets have started and... The ground may be moving towards looking a little bit more like uh, cricket venues that we can focus a lot within the recreational game on who is there and who might be available and who might not be available at various times. But it can be easy to then whiz past the the lack of, of certain people and how we do, like I suppose in every sport, every walk of life, lose people to the game for a range of different reasons. So the second spell is really, however best we can do it, a nudge to people, whether they're themselves lapsed or retired players or people who are currently involved in a club, to try and offer the benefits of cricket for a a second time. So therefore, the quite um, cringeworthy pun of the second spell. And all it is based around is really taking the the benefits for our health and well-being from cricket that are so self-evident we don't need to put a label on it when we're out there and we're playing or we're involved in the sport in some way but just giving that a gentle nudge to people to think well perhaps this reminder has given me the impetus to then go and dust off my old spikes and maybe get down to the local cricket shop and get some equipment to give it another go, whether that be a 22-game ECB Premier League season or the odd midweek T20. Mm. Are you reaching out at people of a a certain age or is it kind of across the board, people who used to play the game a lot and, and currently don't? Yeah, any any age really. And of course, the second spell could be the first spell for some people. If there's uh, those who follow the game who've never played, then I suppose it's their second chance to have a, a spell at it. But a lot of what's made me think about this is people who previously had played, had loved it, and then for a range of reasons have stopped playing and then not quite got back into it. And that might be someone who played at school or played in the junior teams and then didn't quite play a lot of adult cricket all the way through to people who perhaps have got kids now that have grown up and might have a bit more time on a Saturday or a Sunday. And even those who have formally retired, 
but then actually get that itch again and think maybe playing cricket wouldn't be such a bad idea. And there is a great provision for over 40s and 50s and 60s and even 70s now for people to get back involved with either locally or on a county level. Hmm. I think a lot of people, and I, I'm, I'm possibly including this myself, um, associate playing cricket in very specific environments. So um, if for whatever reason you, you have a change of circumstance, you might be moving place, uh, you could have a really bad injury uh, if you played the game at a certain level and you had a certain role and you can't do that anymore. It can be quite hard to actually imagine playing cricket elsewhere because for a lot of people, they play cricket at the same club. So I guess are you trying to encourage people to, to kind of realise that it's not as hard as it as, as it sounds to, to get back into the game in, an, in a new environment? Absolutely. And that's the, the point, really, that a lot of people will have a club that perhaps they're still in contact with and it would appear easier to slip back in there through contacts that are still there or friends that are still playing they might go and watch a little bit but for a lot of people they could have moved areas or they might just find that they don't have a club they consider their own so part of this campaign is really to encourage clubs to think about how they can be as welcoming as possible and there's nothing that I can share there which is going to shatter the earth as a, a new technique but maybe just placing that back on people's agenda to say what can we do that might make us more attractive to new members they turn up for the first time uh, almost at random walking past the the outfield or bumping into an indoor net session through social media it might just be that for any club the ability to recruit a few new people can make the difference uh, between a good season and a not so good one and for that in those individuals that are involved who knows, the impact of playing team sport and all the benefits we get from the connection could just be the thing that turns their life around, which does sound dramatic. But I think so many of us can really attest to the fact that playing cricket, being involved with cricket has so much positive that it would be almost a crime for us not to try and get people to be involved again. Yeah, it's definitely something I think we we sometimes think we take for granted, actually, just kind of how powerful um, being part of a club can be so I'm on my club's committee and the idea of getting new players in you know I, I want I want more players to pay for our club what, what do you think the top tips you'd give a club to uh, either engage people for the first time or re-engage people who used to play and maybe don't play that much at the moment yeah I think from what I've seen across the country some of the best examples about getting new players in uh, say they're people who are brand new to the sport is to offer something which is I guess, at a, a, an appropriate access point. So rather than saying to people, all we have is our first 11, our second 11, so on, is there a potential to offer something which is a sort of cricket for beginners or cricket for returners? Uh, and I know that in various parts of the country, there'll be those midweek leagues where people do feel like they can kind of drift in a little bit more because it might not be taken as seriously. But perhaps designating that as something which can be and picked up by people and then in terms of getting old players back the simple things like an ex-players day or really going through the list of contacts uh, obviously obeying by gdpr and all the rest of it to find those people who we just sort of lost sight of uh, myself i'm from a club which has a, a huge turnover of players and we can always just forget about the fact that so-and-so isn't there or we've got a reason in our head whether it's true or not why they don't play. 
but often getting in touch with someone and saying what do you what do you think about this season do you fancy playing a few games i've always been surprised by how many people don't just flat out say no or say maybe they actually have almost been waiting for for that invitation without knowing it so a bit of intent to do that and from a club's perspective what's the worst that can happen people don't come back um, and you've got the same group of people but showing that we care and that we do want people to come back and they are they are welcomed can make like uh, the whole theme of this such a big difference even though we might not be able to put a label on it or find it tangible in other, in the way that other things are well i'll certainly be firing out a few messages myself over the next week or so um mark it's been great to have you on and great to hear about um the, the second spells campaign i hope it goes as, as well as it possibly can thanks very much good to chat we mentioned that PSL gets underway today. Um, Butch is out there for the tournament and he tweeted something very funny today. So there's a poster at some pre-tournament media event with all the commentators on it. And Butch has very clearly had his head stuck on the body of Mark Boucher with a mistake clearly only being realised quite late on. Um, it is extraordinary how, how often those two get confused. I know their names are similar, but they're not, are they? they're not that similar. Is that what it is? Yeah, okay. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's it's all it's almost like he's planned it because it's just so perfect. It's so it's just the ongoing thing, isn't it? And they've mm. had run-ins as well, the two of them. It's not like they're bosom buddies. <laughs> um, we got a great comment on on the YouTube channel this week. Not quite as good as the one about Ben last week. I mean, actually, you weren't on the show when he's must read this have heard out. It. So do, 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 you want react, do you want to do you want to react to the to the comment at the end of last week's show? Uh, yeah, well, well, I only realised it happened when I looked at the comments for the show. Uh, for last week's show and the guy had commented again saying like he thought he must have been a have had a bit too much of the devil's lettuce when he heard the the stuff at the end <laughs> so yeah that was a uh, that was a nice little little thing well the one this week is one of the best byproducts of watching the wisdom weekly podcast is calculating each commentator's sitting position around the table based on the camera angle the lighting angle the background etc and then calculate the best position of the talking heads in the video it's a great mental exercise uh, we do kind of have our set positions oh absolutely uh, phil gate it when we switch mm, is so confusing i find it quite uncomfortable yeah i mean I, I i don't mind it i think it can be good to keep us on our toes sometimes you know <laughs> like a sort of like fullback switching wings or something yeah he's got the best position though mm. he's got the best view of the of the grounds he gets mm. the tv insight as he well he gets the tv mm. and the computer i can't see anything here <laughs> really other than yes these, these um, two are very close feels very feels too close to me today <laughs> mm. why have you shuffled over I just miss you. Okay. Um, anyway, that is all we have time for today on today's God. show. Cheers, Phil. Cheers, Joe. Cheers, Ben. This has been the Wisdom Cricket Weekly podcast. We'll be back after the first test match. Um, Sports Social Podcast Network.